0: We'll be right everyone, this is American Exception and I'm Aaron Good. This is the second installment in our short series on the all-time classic Secret Agenda, Watergate, Deep Throat, and the CIA by the great Jim Hogan. We were originally going to record a conversation between Jim Hogan, Peter Dell Scott, and myself about the book, but as I said in part one, Peter unfortunately got COVID, so we're postponing that one. The good news is that Peter has been testing negative for COVID and is slowly recovering. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, it's been really remarkable to see Peter at age 93, still minding the darkness, as it were. Jim has been very patient and flexible here, so God willing, we will eventually get that one in the books. Some of you may be new subscribers after my recent Chapo and TrueNon appearances this month. Just so you know, episode 66 is basically a Watergate review centering around a timeline that Jim and Peter created and that I added to a bit to fill in some notable basic Watergate history points along with those other key deep historical points that we wanted to emphasize. Because this stuff can be pretty dense, I added to the Patreon page a PDF document that lays out the timeline visually. Today, Seamus and I are going to get into some really wild suppressed history, including some details about the most mysterious secret agent man of the Watergate saga. There are many to choose from, but of course, I'm talking about CIA man, James McCord, and his sinister and secretive office of security, an inner sanctum of the clandestine state. Seamus McGinnis, it's great to have you back here again to be uh, talking about Secret Agenda. And uh, how are you doing? How are you doing out there? I'm good, how about you? I'm good. The weather is really nice here, and I'm talking about Watergate, so you know that makes me happy.
1: Always an exciting time. We're back for part two uh, in the first part we went over just the timeline of everything that happened from pretty much from nineteen seventy through seventy four uh, leading up to Nixon's resignation and now just diving a little more into what makes secret agenda important. I think it gets at some really huge bombshell facts that hadn't come out up to this point. And Hogan, of course, is one of the top investigators to this day, Secret Agenda remains sort of the Bible of of what happened with Watergate, and and very few people have been able to come close. And at one point, he quotes a fellow investigator who helped him with the book named Bob Fink, uh, who essentially says that he did a walkthrough of the burglary and they crawled through the building Uh, Tracing the supposed movements of the burglars. And it was obvious that the break ins couldn't happen the way that they did. And he says that they could tell that no one, not the police, the prosecutors, or the reporters, had actually walked through the place the way that we did. I think when you go through Hogan's version of the story, you realize that if anyone were willing to investigate as deeply as he did and enmesh themselves like he did, they would find that the entire official story uh, from not just from Republicans, not just from Nixon people, not just from intelligence, but from Democrats, from the media, that it all starts to fall apart when you look any closer than just the sort of broad, like we said last time, all the president's men version of it. So kind of in the big picture, now that we've laid out the timeline, why is Secret Agenda still so valuable uh, 40 years later after it was published?
0: Well, this is uh this is quite a question because it is not something that's easy to summarize. I read it before and I heard Hogan interviewed to talk uh, talking about it on I think Black Op Radio and those were really fascinating with uh Jim Diaginio actually himself came on as kind of a guest co-host with Leno Sanic and they talked about it for a while. And then I went and read the book. And found it to be a, a fascinating read the first time I read went through it, and then coming back and rereading it again recently, it was even better than I recalled. So the the, the main points that it makes are, I mean, it's so vast and in and, and comprehensive in its debunking of the official story, it's hard to approach and even know where to begin with it. Uh, and I think that Hogan himself has. Really, it was a major accomplishment to be able to put this out and and synthesize all this information it, uh, by himself. He's working in realms that are very complicated and secretive and obscure. And the one problem when you get people writing about the clandestine state is that sometimes they're not as meticulous about what is actual good evidence and argument. And they um, may not be so judicious about all their sourcing and everything else. And so you're, you're in a position where you don't know how seriously to take a, an author's work as a whole. But Hogan is super meticulous about all this and, and lays so many things out that I think even includes information that he recognizes is significant, even when he can't necessarily come up with fitting this into any grand theory of everything. Uh He couldn't have done that. He couldn't have possibly done that. We still can't possibly do that with all the information that we have because of uh, you know the issues of state secrecy. So it's useful for the way that it makes its case in the broadest sense, but also there's just many nuggets in there that are worth checking out. Now I'm going to just read a a section here where he summarizes, as as well as any part of the book, uh, he summarizes what how this book came into being and what its contributions are and. He makes, uh, I, you could say these are bold claims, but I think he, he, he largely uh, b- backs these up with the evidence he puts out in the book. So here's what he writes. I was the first outsider to get an inside look at the FBI's Watergate investigation, and what I found was startling. The most fundamental premise of the affair has always been that White House spies bugged the Democrats in their headquarters at the Watergate complex apparently to gain political intelligence. FBI documents, however, and other evidence that that was either ignored or overlooked by Senate committees, prosecutors, and the press show conclusively that telephones in the Watergate offices of the Democratic National Committee were never bugged. False evidence in the form of a crude defunct bugging device was planted inside the DNC months after the Watergate arrests so as to conceal the truth about the affair. Further investigation showed that G. Gordon Liddy, the ostensible leader of the espionage team, was in actuality a dupe of his subordinates, E. Howard Hunt and James McCord. Hunt and McCord were secretly working for the CIA while using the White House as a cover for domestic intelligence operations that, in Hunt's case, included spying on the administration he had sworn to serve. Clients of prostitutes in the Columbia Plaza Apartments located near the Watergate complex were the real targets of the bugging operation. Watergate then was not so much a partisan political scandal as it was secretly a sex scandal, the unpredictable outcome of a CIA operation that, in the simplest terms, tripped on its own shoelaces. There is more, much more, but the point is made, our recent history is a forgery the byproduct of secret agents acting on secret agendas of their own. So I think that that summary and explanation of how the book came about and what its major findings are is pretty spot on. The only thing that that I would say is debatable is the conclusion that it was uh, an operation that tripped on its own shoelaces. But even Hogan kind of makes the case that they seem to have wanted to get arrested, that McCord, McCord seems to have sabotaged the burglary uh, in particular. And so, you know, even, even his own assessment is, is maybe not a perfect encapsulation of what he actually lays out in the book, because it's ultimately so confusing as to try to figure out exactly what happened. I tend to be on the side of that that it was sabotaged on purpose and that mccord wanted people to be arrested um, because they would be caught in the act of doing something that had implications for uh, very important parts of the clandestine you know state in the u.s and that the and it seems like he almost uh blundered into this to draw attention to this for particular reasons uh and uh, perhaps the sensitivity of it led to the outcome of Watergate, which is that it necessitated a the removal of a president rather than a real hashing out of this whole thing. But, um, you know, Hogan leaves that kind of up in the air. And it's a possibility that you can draw from his work. And it speaks to how good his research is that it lends itself to other interpretations because these are ultimately kind of ambiguous issues. So for, for all these reasons, the book is extremely useful and the most the best book on Watergate it's the best critical book on Watergate to this day. Um, Jefferson Morley in his recent book, when he was talking to me about it, I um, his book is good uh, on Watergate. And he said um, that it's kind of an extension of, uh, of Hogan's that it's really in that tradition of Jim Hogan's that that was like the first of the book and that was what inspired him. And so this is uh th- that's high praise. And um, I, like I said, the book still today, best book on Watergate.
1: and, Most of the work in the wake of of Secret Agenda has been sort of based on it. The same goes for Silent Coup um, and several other books on it. And you're not alone in thinking that about McCord. Not only does Hogan lay that out, but Eugenio Martinez, who's one of the other burglars himself for years said that he thought it was McCord and that he wanted them to get caught. And the question, of course, is then why that would be. Um, but first, we'll talk a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover, because we talked about him yesterday, um, especially uh, in the run up to his death. He, of course, uh, shuts down the Houston plan, which we'll come back to later. Um, but Hoover is sort of a power base in himself at this point. Uh, he's spent decades on decades on decades cementing power and using the McCarthy period and everything else to build a, a giant intelligence network of his own and a huge amount of blackmail on a ton of very important people across Washington and and across the country that have given him a power base that very few individuals in the American deep state have ever really been able to build. And that is what left him in the place where he could be director for life all all the way up until his death. And so that's all leading up to this point where, uh, as we talked about last time he's no fan of the CIA and, and and he's plenty suspicious of them. And he knows that Nixon is going to get burnt by them. And at one point he he says to the newspaper columnist, Andrew Tully, by God, he's meaning Nixon, got some former CIA men working for him that I'd kick out of my office. Someday that bunch will serve him up a fine mess. And I think Watergate is is itself quite the fine mess after all. So in terms of how it... Uh, The the specific timing, you talked a little bit about how it's possible that Hoover was killed. Um, But what is the significance of Hoover's death at this point?
0: Well, that must have sent shockwaves through the establishment in Washington, because it was a kind of open secret that Hoover had all kinds of dirt on everyone. And this is uh, there's kind of not really any good competing hypothesis as to why such a unsavory character would be able to stay around for so long i mean I, I think another factor is that he served presidents and was very useful to presidents at the right times to maintain his hold on power and was very useful to to the presidents at the time i mean i think the the president that he clashed with the most was jfk and it's famous uh, that famously, he was the person who told Robert Kennedy about uh, the pre- about Jack Kennedy being shot in Dallas, and he delivered it to, to him in a very cold way that uh, stuck with RFK at the time. He was very cold and impersonal about it, um, and so this is you know notable. And people have wondered why Kennedy didn't fire him, and there were discussions of this, but Kennedy for whatever reason, believed he had to accommodate the establishment. And so he didn't fire Hoover and he didn't fire Dulles. Probably should have fired both of them. There are those who've tried to put the Kennedy assassination on, um, on Hoover. I don't think that that really, I don't think that it was an FBI affair, but I think that FBI elements could have been involved in some ways with Oswald uh, as they sort of outsourced COINTELPRO type operations to people like Guy Bannister, you know, and and what Oswald did in in New Orleans. But there's other documents or, you know, there's other parts of the Kennedy assassination where Hoover is saying that he, um, that the Cubans have been double dealing in Mexico City, or sorry, not the Cubans, the CIA. So he's pointing out that the CIA has been deceiving people uh, regarding aspects of Oswald and his travels uh, to Mexico City in particular. Hoover didn't believe the magic bullet theory. Hoover reportedly told a, I mean, they they wanted to come up with a different theory. It was an FBI investigation and Hoover thought that the magic bullet thing was ridiculous and implausible because it was, but the, the magic bullet was just decided upon because you have the problem of uh, only three bullets and one of them clearly missing the target because hit, it hits James Tag, and then the other one exploding Kennedy's head, which was pretty memorable for everybody that saw it. And so then you have to put with uh, the the one remaining bullet, creating uh, seven wounds in, in two men, which was and it was impossible and ridiculous. And even Joe Rogan, when he interviewed Oliver, said like, "This is the biggest fraud in the history of the United States government," and it was. And Hoover recognized that. And uh, but the you know he was an establishment guy, and he went along with this cover up, and he probably was happy to see the Kennedys gone.
1: Yeah, he was he was more than happy to oblige with the cover up, and and Peter in in Deep Politics and the Death of JFK lays out the the multi phase cover up process. And Hoover is not necessarily strong armed into it, but he's not left a whole lot of choices. But he he doesn't seem to be a sort of controlling player as much as he's sort of a auxiliary player that is all too happy to get rid of a Kennedy if he can if he can help it. But of course, he also had plenty of power and blackmail over him, so. Uh, that that's how he was able to stick around. But uh, I mean, again, it's not as if LBJ was any less in his pocket in the end.
0: Well, LBJ was another one of those people, I mean, in American politics who had risen largely because he was co-optable and corruptible. And he became the richest man in the Senate, despite being going to like what Midland Valley Teachers College or something like that. Like he wasn't an Ivy League guy at all he always kind of resented and was paranoid uh, about and insecure about these Eastern establishment guys, kind of like Nixon was himself even. Um, But whereas Kennedy felt like he had a better understanding of of these people, maybe that made him overconfident and he didn't realize the peril that he was in. Apparently that was the case. But uh, Hoover, you know, LBJ was different uh, in in that regard and he wasn't going to go against the establishment. I mean, you know, you realize when, lbj is there the uh the cia is unleashed around the world they reverse a lot of kennedy policies and you have uh these other domestic things i mean the main problem with hoover and these domestic surveillance things is he feels like they're getting into his territory like hoover's objections to the houston plan and so on uh and and he, he doesn't like these things because he's worried about any office handling this sort of business. He, he likes to have this fiefdom of him, himself to operate in. That's why he was opposed to the creation of the CIA in the first place. So as, as Peter points out, Hoover seemed to be connected to parts of the establishment that were more that were more related to the domestic economy uh, of the United States. So it's a sort of right-wing, not the, internet, the, not the so-called liberal internationalists or the multilateralists um, who would have been like the Rockefeller types that would have wanted to set up the um, the you know American century and the Council on Foreign Relations and all that. So he's more of a, a kind of, you, it's hard to classify these things in particular, but he's kind of a domestically centered right-wing figure, uh, a part of a kind of a right-wing, what's the term I'm looking for? Like kind of, I don't want to say like the know-nothing party, you know, from U.S. history, but something similar that he didn't like these cosmopolitan uh, capitalists, you know, he wanted he didn't want the CIA to be created. He felt like that was getting into his territory. He wasn't so,
1: really a Rockefeller man. Uh, in, no, in that way, like, he, he still is a conservative, uh, by far. But I mean, he's he's around for so long. He's a different kind of sort of older form of American conservative. He's around for the Palmer raids under Wilson. He doesn't get up Wilson's approval on all kinds of actions. Then he's around for FDR. But he also, breaks plenty of rules to go get the KKK at the same time he's going after the left. And he reports Smedley Butler's uh, 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 report to him about the business coup under FDR. He turns around and tells FDR about that. Um, so he he has no problem turning on fascists either. He's not really a, he's maybe not a, a, a dullest type where he's just sort of buddies with anybody who is, uh, who could be aligned with the Nazis. He's, he's, more of a establishment guy than anything else. And his main loyalty is to whatever he sees as these security interests. But domestically his his enemies are uh on the left and right, uh, mostly the left obviously, but uh, but yeah. he also spends plenty of time, you know, denying the existence of the mafia. And then when he finally does accept it, then it's La Cosa Nostra and it's you know it, he has his own vested interests in organized crime and everything because he has his own network and his own, his own interest there.
0: Right. And when they do go after uh, the KKK, I mean, Hoover uses what you have to call like exceptionalist measures and uh, elements of the deep political system of the deep state to go after the KKK. And he does this, he's, he's effective in doing this because, uh, and, and this is a way to curry favor with the administration. So he's a survivor and he can survive. he was able to survive and thrive even in the most progressive administration that the US has ever had. And interestingly, he was against the interning of uh, Japanese Americans. And somebody like McCloy, John McCloy, uh, I think McCloy was in favor of that. I think he was involved in that. And that which to me seems interesting, because McCloy is a Rockefeller man. And uh, this was the designs for East Asia were really like, this is what Henry Luce is talking about in the American century. He's talking about how much money the U.S. could make in Asia. And the whole, really the whole war with Japan has to be seen as uh, the U.S. establishment wanting to uh, have a foothold in East Asia and not allow Japan to have a hegemony over, over East Asia. But, I mean, this, this to me seems to be the purpose of people like Henry Luce. And we know now which we didn't know for a long time, that the people in the Dulles circle, Rockefeller standard oil circles, that they knew about these vast uh, resource deposits, especially oil and gold in the Dutch East Indies. Uh, And so there was all this reason for really being focused on the Pacific. So you can factor that into like why these McCloy type, McCloy and others were like for the internment of the Japanese and, and really an all out war effort in the Pacific to make sure that the U.S. could um, establish you know hegemony over that region where the, the Japanese empire wouldn't be able to so hoover's a, a complicated character and his death sent shockwaves throughout the establishment and this is it, it's quite uh fateful that he would die right at the time that the white house is attempting to restructure the uh, security services really and the whole dirty tricks constellation in the united states uh, they things that the, that the plumbers were doing were that were like the kind of black bag jobs that Hoover uh, would have been Hoover's FBI would have been doing routinely. I mean, probably more stealthily and outsourcing it when they needed to, to for more deniability. Uh, and the plumbers would have been aware of this kind of trade craft and they didn't use it, but the thing is Hoover's dead. And so there's a lot of reason to wonder if his death was uh, brought about by people who wanted to, um, keep him from acting in any sort of way that could uh, preserve the Nixon administration and so on. It's hard to say exactly. Uh, but, but either way, his death sets off a scramble to get his, the files that he, he is believed to have over everyone.
1: Yeah. Once and, he's, once he's dead, uh, as we're talking about his power base is in all of these files that he's amassed. And so, those, those have to go somewhere or do they go away? Do that? Does somebody burn them like Richard Helms burns all of his legacy uh, with his tenure at the CIA? Like we talked about last time, what happens to his files at this point?
0: Yeah, it's, it would be good. I'd like to know the answer to that question, too. Uh, William Sullivan, who was the number three man at the FBI, he made um, a comment about this, that they were that they were real. He said that they exist. And... Uh, he said that they simply disappeared following Hoover's death. So Hogan writes, Indeed, no less in authority than William Sullivan, formerly the number three man in the FBI, vouched for their existence, describing the manner in which they were collected and used, and asserted that they simply disappeared following Hoover's death. Now, this is a guy, William Sullivan, who dies in a very dangerous time period during the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And he warns his friend, Robert Novak, Of the right wing commentator, the journalist of uh, Evans and Novak, I think was the name of the show that they used to do. So Robert Novak's a famous right wing guy. He I think one of the last things in his career he was involved in was the outing of Valerie Plame. Right, that was a a scandal. He was kind of in the end of his career. But William Sullivan was a friend of his, and he called him and he said, "If I ever die in an accident, don't believe that. Don't believe what you hear. If I die in some strange way, and it turns out that William Sullivan does." die during this time period uh, being mistaken for a deer and killed by a policeman's son is who they, they blame it on.
1: No, um, Aaron, but he does. If got you or so. I, if you or I ever have a real weird death, I think we can both agree right now. This, this is my William Sullivan moment. Don't believe it.
0: I mean, it's, I don't know that I have any, I, I'm more of a theorist and I don't, I think that without the first, I mean, when I don't want to say theorist. I mean, in a social science sense, so I, they usually don't go after academics. So, I, you know, I mean, if something really weird happens, hey, please check it out. But I, I would think more I'm more worried about any kind of poisoning sort of thing. And then it just be like, oh, you died of this or that or whatever. And then the, I couldn't, you couldn't do anything about it. Getting shot by a deer is suspicious. So I digress. But let's come back to Sullivan getting shot by a deer. And this is really uh, interesting because he he would have known a lot about the cover up. He was involved in the. Uh, in aspects of Oswald investigations and so on, as I understand it, through the FBI. And so he knew things that would have made him an interesting person, but he dies right about that. Now, it comes out during this period after Watergate. Uh, I'm just going to read, this is another thing about um, Hogan's book that is really notable. Um, Well, first of all, let me talk about the files that they say that Hogan points out that everybody's talking about, that Hogan sort of outlines this story. And I think maybe as well as it's ever been done Although I haven't read every book on Hoover. But Hoover had these files that were labeled personal and confidential. And they were uh, su- supposedly, we were told later that, oh, these were just like actually personal files. And they're not really important. And there's no secret files. Don't don't be ridiculous. But parts of this personal and confidential section in, in all of Hoover's documents come out. And they're weird because they actually aren't personal. They are things that seem like they would have been you know, kept because they were pretty sensitive. But the only ones that come out are related to the letter B. They're all things that begin with the letter B and Hogan, you know, lists some of these. And so this was led a lot of people to believe that there were much more and that they were taken somewhere. Where were they taken? Well, um, one thing that's in a footnote that Hogan wrote, and I'm just going to read the footnote because it's uh, it's, this is, his research was so exhaustive on all this and he puts all this together. So, According to a former staff member of the House Intelligence Committee, the files were suspected by some to have been transported to the Blue Ridge, and it says in parentheses, Rod and Gun Club in the Shenandoah Valley. I guess that means it's like a fishing and hunting kind of thing. Uh, The club was an old and beautiful 27-room lodge on a hill overlooking the Potomac River near Harper's Ferry. The lodge was the weekend retreat of more than two dozen top FBI agents and CIA officers, including John Moore and James Angleton. Weekends there were devoted to hunting, fishing, and seven-card stud, and the tab was usually picked up by Joseph Tate, presiding or president of the U.S. Recording Company. Tate was apparently reimbursed by the others for the $600 tabs, which would have been a lot back then. A U.S. Recording was itself a subject of congressional interest. Among other things, it was a cutout for suppliers of secret surveillance equipment to the FBI. One of those suppliers, Martin Kaiser, Discovered in 1972, the U.S. recording was adding a 30% markup to the price of all equipment invoiced through its offices. This was for the convenience of mere paperwork, questionable practice. And three years later, when news of the markup was made public by Kaiser, an investigation was undertaken by the House Intelligence Committee. The committee quickly focused on the weekends spent by the counterintelligence establishment at the Blue Ridge Club, and an interesting group of people to get to hang out together, and um, the question being whether Tate or the others benefited improperly from the cutout arrangement with the FBI. To answer that question, committee staffers journeyed to Harper's Ferry to examine the books at the Blue Ridge Lodge. When they arrived, however, they found only a smoldering ruin and the standing remains of huge stone fireplaces. The Blue Ridge Club, they learned, burned to the ground that very morning, shortly after dawn. According to a former staff member of the Intelligence Committee, it was suspected that Hoover's files had been among those destroyed in the blaze. The origin of the fire has never been determined with certainty, though fire marshals believe that it was probably caused by an electrical failure.
1: Very weird. Must be an accident.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, that is amazing timing. And uh, there's, you know, that's the, I guess there's two fires at least, if we don't want to count the smoldering wreckage of the plane that killed uh, Dorothy Hunt. There's also this fire related to James McCord uh, and Pennington. A CIA guy named Pennington sets that off at McCord's instruction, but we'll probably come back to that. The, the the bigger point with Hoover is that this was there was a, there would have been a scramble to get these documents. I wouldn't say that you can say with any certainty that they would be at the Blue Ridge Lodge. I would guess that they would have been absconded somewhere else, um, but that for whatever reason they just destroy this. And in a way it can almost be a, a cover story for those who would say that like there was a, that who did indeed have all these files that were hidden away somewhere. You just say, oh, well, there's this fire anyway. And then even if it looks suspicious, what can you say? They're they're gone. But I would guess that they, whoever would have had the ability to beat these investigators out there and get that place incinerated uh, in, in short order, would have been connected to powerful entities that would not have wanted to destroy something like that. So I would just put that out there.
1: All right, so turn a little bit. We've, we've talked a lot about James McCord so far, but let's start off here, since this is sort of a primer, uh, just to remind everybody or for people who are not aware, who is James McCord? What's his background leading up to being a Watergate burglar?
0: Right. James McCord, I, I feel like, when people would talk about the '70s and some of the paranoid uh, cinema of the 1970s, it's like they call it like paranoid cinema. Even um, people are like, it, "It's really weird. It's so far out," <laughs> because there was so much strange business going on, and it was done, you know, in the '60s and '70s. People were smoking a lot of dope, and it, in reality, it was kind of psychedelic itself. Like these kind of doors of perception were opening in in other ways about the way the state actually worked. And McCord himself is a, such a strange character. Um, and he he died uh, a few years ago. And this was interesting because the Washington Post in his obituary, they actually mentioned that it was uh, Kennedy's and King, I think, broke the story, which was Jim DiEgenio's website of James McCord dying. And this is a, a character who I think is one of the more important figures of understanding the U.S. empire not because he himself was this important statesman, but because he represented forces that uh, were quite decisive in determining important events in American history. And he's such a bizarre character. Um, it, it, it's, he is still an enigma to this day. And he was a security service guy, you know, worked for the Clandestine Service and was kind of a cleanup man in certain things, which we'll get to. And he becomes fixated on pinning the burglary on the White House, which would seem to go against every ethic that someone like him had. And he was, by all accounts, a devoted uh, security, national security state guy. So uh, yeah. what
1: what James Engleton says of him is that he would never do anything if it wasn't following orders.
0: Yeah. And then when you when you look at the his body of work and his statements which we'll get to you, you get the impression that this is a guy who really values the uh, um war, war respects or even worships authority and uh it is not someone who is out there freelancing so but he's and, and this has to be noted is not someone who believes that legal uh prescriptions are set in stone and have to be obeyed above all. I mean, he's a guy who totally, believe, you know, believes that the ends kind of justify the means and that security trumps other things. I don't think there's no other way to describe it. So he's a guy, you've got to explain what he was doing. He was, as I said, focused on pinning the burglar on the white house and not allowing it to be blamed on the CIA because you blame it on, you blame things on the CIA. The the you know, the media has a a longstanding practice of really presenting these things in ways that are favorable to the cia or the pentagon and it really would have been a largely harmless thing it wouldn't have caused the cia as much harm as watergate did uh, if they had just blamed it on the cia and then encouraged the major newspapers to stop talking about it then it would have just been one more thing that people are writing about in like um gallery magazine right with like fletcher prouty in between like little uh, different porno spreads would be writing these articles about the CIA, right? It would be like some sort of screwball thing, but he was, but the post, there was a the post writing about it. So this becomes a big story. Now he had financial problems at the time. I think he had a daughter who had was, was had some sort of handicap that uh, made her require uh, it was expensive to take care of her. So McCord really would have needed the job and the pension uh, from the CIA, uh, at the highest level possible. So him resigning when he does, doesn't make a lot of sense according to his actual circumstances. Uh, and then after the fact, after Watergate, he becomes a celebrity of sorts and he, but he turns down a huge book advance from a big company, a big publishing company in order to write his own memoir,
1: which is which completely is- insane. It's uh, Hogan has a couple quotes from it. And I just want to put it out there, because he he writes the book called A Piece of Tape. And this is his wonderful prose style. A piece of masking tape opened a door that shook a nation to its very foundations. A measuring tape that was Watergate plumbed the depths of the most powerful nation in the world. A piece of magnetic tape may impeach the most powerful man in the world. Is a nation's will and character now being measured with yet another piece of tape in the hands of him who created all that is. Right. I mean, this is the, it, it, his writing in this is
0: bizarre. I don't know what to make of this uh, Hogan's description. I mean, he describes a piece of tape as easily the strangest and most difficult to find of all the Watergate books. Okay. Unbelievably, even pointedly dull and irrelevant. Uh, it tells us virtually nothing about McCord, his work for the CRP or the events leading to the Watergate arrest nevertheless manages to be inaccurate or misleading on an astonishing number of matters. Um, And he 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 also gives
1: you every Bible quote that has the word tape in it, like a measuring tape. It just keeps coming up because it's just his he figured out a like a fifth grader book report version of a Watergate conspiracy that he's a part of. And that's his version of it. It's somehow like wildly boring and completely has nothing to do with anything. He's just like quoting Ezekiel over and over
0: yeah, I would like to actually, I mean, th- to hear it. every description that I've heard is that it's not an enjoyable read. And yet I I do kind of want to read it. I have a feeling that McC- that Hogan's summary of it and the excerpts are probably the high points of it. So I'm not in a real hurry to go out and actually get it. But uh, the way the sections where Hogan writes about it are some of the funnier parts in the book. And even as serious as all this stuff is, Hogan's prose is very good. And his it, it, it's this part is funny because it just sums it up. I mean, he writes, lest we miss the point, McCord goes on to define the word tape and does so in such a way as to invite the reader to ponder its meaning in an esoteric, almost cabalistic way, Uh, tape to size up, figure out, record on magnetic tape, a measure, uh, fasten, bind, make secure, red tape, tape measure, a rule for measuring the circumference and diameter.
1: Yeah, Aaron, you're a teacher. I'm sure you've gotten many uh, an intro with like. Webster's Dictionary defines tape as but usually I mean like Angleton and company are like these Ivy League like modernist poetry heads and they're usually they can at least write I mean like uh, I I forget somebody wrote what like 70 books and then and then he's out here just given the most like fourth grade intro that you can to his piece of tape book that's supposed to be a memoir about being at the center of the crime of the century for, for the White House.
0: Yeah, and some of the, the selections of it, I mean, I'm not like a, not like a Bible head or something, so I, I have to confess to not being well-versed in the Bible. But when I read one of the, the sections here, I went to go and look it up because I just thought, is that really in the Bible? Can that be in the Bible? And I'll, I'll read the section, then I'll tell you what I found in my, uh, let's call it an investigation. Um, if you see some poor man being oppressed by the rich with miscarriage of justice everywhere throughout the land, Don't be surprised. For every official is under orders from higher up and the higher officials look up to their superiors. And so the matter is lost in red tape and bureaucracy and all over them is the king and or sorry, and over them all is the king. Oh, for a king who is devoted to his country, only he can bring order from the chaos. And this is credited or cited as Ecclesiastes 5, eight. And I, I, when I saw this, I thought, Okay, and he puts in red tape in capital letters. So it's very subtle uh, craft here. Um, but when, when I thought that that was odd, so I looked it up, and that is something from a version of the Bible called the Living Bible, uh, which was first published in 1971, so right before this time. And when you read the other versions of this passage, it, it doesn't say anything about red tape. It, it's very strange. It's almost. I don't know the origins. I I didn't look too deeply into the origins, but it seems like a strange kind of Reagan era, like version of conservatism where you start talking about red tape and bureaucracy. The the Living Bible is a
1: is a quote personal paraphrase of the Bible that he just decided was now his his go to so that he could put the word tape in there a bunch of times and and have these like esoteric quotes
0: yeah i mean it doesn't make any sense because when i did more googling i'm like all right i'm going to get to the bottom of this red tape When did this when did they start using this term and it was like the what from what i gathered it was in the 1600s and it had to do with like uh, uh administrations uh of like different of governments in europe that started to use like red tape or red seals and so it didn't I, that makes no sense for it to be in the bible it doesn't but he puts all these things in here and you know he's talking about david and and goliath here uh with the measuring tape. And it's just very strange. And what's notable about this is the, the tape part, okay, we get the, like a piece of tape and he's talking about, supposedly talking about the parts of the Watergate tapes that ultimately did Nixon in, right? But other issues related to tape are, and this is the, the real notable part, is the tape was uh, essential for the way that they got caught in the Watergate, the taping on the doors. And this was kind of controversial by different Watergate people. And it was kind of argued about for a while. And uh, people were debating, like, well, did they put it in the weird way that you're supposed to if you don't want to be detected where you put it vertically so it doesn't stick out from the actual doors and can't be seen by people walking by? The idea is, if this needs to be explained, I'm, and I'm assuming it does for some people because most of my listeners are probably not experienced at breaking and entering. At least I, I hope not. Is you, you have a lock like maybe if you lived in a dorm you wanted to like stop the door from clicking right you just stop the, the part of the doorknob from going out into the door by putting like tape over it or putting something of it over it to keep it from catching
1: now let's and, be clear these are supposedly the most elite plumber plumb the leak top guys that richard helms could find who are supposedly maybe we're not pros at breaking and entering they're kind of supposed to be that's supposed to be their thing and they botch it with Ellsberg psychiatrist, and then right in the middle of this, right at the DNC, at the Watergate, they managed to supposedly, as you're, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but leave the tape sideways hanging out.
0: Well, that, but they—that this is just it. If you read The Secret Agenda, th- that was my understanding was, uh, after hearing it explained, I think on some interview, and, and I would guess that I probably misremembered the actual discussion on the interview after going back and rereading it, but people, he didn't. He most likely did not leave it so that it was sticking out on the sides. They tried to explain this, and G. Gordon Liddy explained it. But the bigger point is it, because if if you leave it with the tape sticking out on the sides, to where it can be seen by anybody walking by, then it's argued by others, like people like Liddy and others, at, at different points because they kind of argue different things about this at different times. But if you have the tape sticking on sideways, then it doesn't look like somebody's trying to conceal what they are doing. It looks like. It's potentially something that the maintenance crews do and maintenance people do that all the time because you've got to think if you're working in a hotel or any other building like that and you don't want to go and search out, have the right keys, you don't want to carry around a bazillion keys, then you may just do this to be able to get in and out more quickly. And this was a thing at the Watergate where like they had had the security had had to talk to these people, the maintenance people on different occasions, say, hey, stop doing this. So if the tape was taped in a vertical way, then you don't see it when you're walking by and if you're a security guard or whoever else, it just looks like a regular door. And so this is probably what McCord did. And the reason that this is still damning or, or bad tradecraft is that if you're a security guard and you go through a door and it's not locked and you see that it's been taped vertically, which is the less obvious way to do it, but it's actually more obvious in terms of being, uh, The uh, uh, indicating some kind of burglary, indicating some kind of chicanery. Well, the guy sees it
1: once and then has to come back and then sees it again. And it doesn't actually matter whether or not the tape was what tipped him off, because as Hogan points out, like the, the cop who shows up on the scene is sitting like two blocks away when he gets the dispatcher call. And And he's supposed to be off duty and he just takes it anyway. Yeah. And he just shows up and he, of course, himself, I'm trying to find his name, but he has all these
0: Carl Schauffler.
1: Schauffler has all these ties to to intelligence and and like very clearly sex
0: sex also sex issues. I don't mean personal sex issues. I don't know anything about his personal sex life. I think he's dead anyway. Peter met him and and he's going to have some interesting things to say about him uh, when it comes to this. But the point is about McCord, which Setting aside the confusion over the um, taping, over the whether the thing was taped vertically or horizontally, is that he told the other people that he had actually um, removed the tape. He was supposed to remove the tape. It's bad tradecraft to leave the tape there.
1: Another tradecraft mistake that he makes is he says, oh, there's a there's like an alarm in the room and we can't go in yet. And everybody's looked... There's no sign of anything that could even be mistaken for an alarm. And again, it's really like cannot hammer home enough. These are supposed to be the top guys. And so the fact that and and some people are agnostic on whether they're following orders, whether they're really just incompetent. And like we talked about last time, investigators and especially like Democrats and, and the media had a vested interest in the burglars being oh, well, you know, they're just following orders because we need Nixon to be the bad guy. But also they're also like third rate burglars and they're not good at their jobs, but they're not so bad at their jobs that maybe it was intentional. And so it's this game that they have to play where it, it has to be botched enough that it wasn't a plan to catch them. But it also has to be poorly done just to the point where, what you know, it wasn't some kind of like sabotage by McCord or anybody else because you need it to be a focus on the immorality of Nixon debasing the White House and and you know, abusing his power and all this stuff that is not really the core of the story here, because the more you dig into it, the more it's really obvious that someone, especially McCord, is not doing their job on purpose because he's again and again and again ruining the recordings and and lying to the other plumbers about the about the break in to make sure that he can bring in Baldwin, Uh, all this other stuff to make sure that it very intentionally falls apart in a way that's extremely damaging to Nixon.
0: Yeah, it maximizes. He wants to maximize the, the the damage that it does to Nixon. And you get some sense as to why when he says that they better not fire Helms and they better, it, if he does, it's going to be a scorched desert and so on. They better not blame this on the CIA. Now, the so the thing with, with McCord also is that he got, as you, you mentioned that Angleton said he was a guy who would always follow orders. Whatever he was doing, he would follow orders, which I... I think that is a totally reasonable assessment that conforms with what I know about McCord. Additionally, Angleton said McCord wasn't uh, just a technician. He was an operator, you know, meaning like he was a a guy that you would have running things uh, and operations, which which we know to be true based on other things uh, that came out afterwards. Like John Newman writes that uh, he was involved. He was the guy managing the FBI efforts to discredit the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Okay, which Uh, These they would have these sort of COINTELPRO style operations that CIA was illegally running uh, dealing with uh, the the Fair Play for Cuba committee, which I mean, what's the most famous Fair Play for Cuba discrediting incident ever? It's the Oswald,
1: Lee Harvey Orleans.
0: Right. So it's really that part is really remarkable that he likely had knowledge of that.
1: And these are all top players. I mean, uh, uh, we were just talking about before how how Frank Sturgis came up. Peter Dale Scott had already reported on him in, in 73. And then the break in happens and he's like, Is it the same Frank Sturgis, the same Frank Friarini? And so these guys are have been at the top for a long time and, mm, and just he, so happen to get caught on this job, but not others.
0: Well, Sturgis is a is a marginal figure who kind of goes between the mob and, and different CIA sort of paramilitary things, and he is involved in that, you know, in the Kennedy assassination.
1: I but, I more mean like central figures but, to several things where they, yes. you know, McCord is somebody that you have sitting in jail and he's high stakes, not just for Nixon, but even more so for the CIA because he just knows about so much.
0: Besides Angleton saying that he always would, it was a guy who was going to follow orders. And he also said that he was a, an operator, not just a technician. You have Alan Dulles himself who said McCord is one of our best guys to an Air Force officer. If I recall correctly, I think that's recounted in, uh, Russ Baker's uh, Family of Secrets. Additionally, Helms had that. There's that famous picture that uh, the portrait that Helms gave to McCord, which was signed with, uh, he, he inscribed with deep appreciation, Richard Helms. So he was like, and underlines deep, right? Which is great for us deep state <laughs> uh, investigators. So this is a guy who was, uh, I mean, here you have it. Angleton, Helms and Dulles, Alan Dulles are all giving the seal of approval to the, you know, rectitude and, uh, you know, professionalism of James McCord. So this and is McCord's- not a, a guy who would be bungling this stuff.
1: And McCord's been around uh, as as Hogan finds, there's evidence that him and Hunt know each other long before, uh, you know, they, they testify that they do uh, at least as early as 1963, if not earlier which obviously kind of an important year as to whether or not, you know, another CIA agent. Uh, but also he has a, a sort of disgruntled former landlady um, who, again, we're not we're not supporting landladies here, but maybe if, if it's a landlady versus James McCord and a CIA agent, I'm, I'm going to take her side. But uh, she ends up talking a lot about what she saw while she while he was living as, as a tenant to hers. If you want to talk a little bit about that.
0: Right. This is another case where it's not explained exactly what he was doing or why he would have needed to do what he was doing. Um, he, he rents this apartment from her and uh, she eventually kicks him out for breaking her rules. I guess she's a she's a person who works for the government in some capacity uh, doing classified work. I think she even has a security clearance, but she's not working in the realms that Accord would be working. In. So this is... Analogous to like the safe house in San Francisco where George White, you know, as part of Operation Midnight Climax, right, which was part of the whole MK Ultra thing, he would dose people with LSD uh, using prostitutes and so on, and then would videotape them and they watch it all and record everything. Um, this this brings that that episode to mind because like um, George White's, you know, the person that George White rented his safe house from. This was a she, it was a government employee who was had a security clearance but was working in a different part of the government. So Mrs. Furbishaw, uh, according to her, McCord, this is what Hogan writes: McCord failed to live up to all her conditions. He paid his rent on time using crisp hundred dollar bills, but there was more than one occasion on which young girls visited during the night. So it was that the fastidious Mrs. Furbishaw, which reminds you of like Dickets, Dickinson or something, right? And Havisham or, or whatever. Uh, Mrs. Furbishaw decided to evict McCord in an angry confrontation with her tenant that was carried out in the presence of a young woman, said to have been crying hysterically on the bed. McCord's landlady ordered him to leave. Uh, Eventually, Ms. Furbishaw said McCord to the FBI, she said this, uh, had several male visitors while a tenant and that one of those visitors was E. Howard Hunt. FBI also reported that McCord, in conversation with Furbishaw, stated that he was engaged in counterintelligence and other phases of military intelligence. And that during installation of a separate telephone in McCord's basement apartment, the telephone company installation man commented to Mrs. Furbishaw that there was considerable bugging equipment inside her tenant's apartment. Uh, All in all, a peculiar affair, not merely because Hunt and McCord would later testify that they did not meet each other for the first time until April of 1972, long after Hunt's visit to the Furbishaw apartment and McCord's eviction uh Ferbishaw's reminiscence is interesting also because mccord is not supposed to have been in possession of bugging equipment prior to april 1972 which is to say that hunt and mccord were engaged in some kind of clandestine operation before the watergate break-in and that the operation apparently involved young women and bugging equipment so there you go what was what was he involved with there uh, and in what capacity was this part of you know was this a CIA operation or something connected to that? Or were they freelancing in some sort of way for the, for Nixon's White House? Uh, hard to say.
1: And that goes to Hogan's theory, of course, that Watergate is partially a sex scandal or or a CIA operation around essentially a honeypot to collect blackmail on, on DC circles using a call girl. Uh, that's the call girl theory. Um, but coming back to McCord a little bit. Uh, he's a part of the Office of Security. So at this point in time, what is the Office of Security? What are they doing and, and what do they get involved in?
0: Right, so this is um, where I think McCore, or uh, sorry, Hogan really does an excellent job summarizing what the Office of Security is uh, because when you look at their body of work, it really uh, it raises some eyebrows. So uh, this section, very valuable, and I do recommend everybody go and read the book, but this section is worth, is worth reading here. So I'm going to read a passage from Hogan where he lays out the, the, what the, security, the office of security is all about. Sounds like just a generic security guard outfit, but as you'll see, it's, it's quite a bit more uh, amazing than that. The reputation of the Office of Security tends to be that of a guard service staffed by gumshoes and technicians whose principal tasks are to conduct background investigations, enforce security regulations, and protect the agency's property. In reality, however, the Office of Security is far more complex and even mysterious. Its broad responsibilities to protect CIA assets, operations, and personnel, require it to maintain close liaison with any number of police departments, to operate wherever the agency has assets and to maintain more than 1.7 million security files on individuals who are, for one reason or another, legitimately or not of interest to the CIA. The OS is also responsible for housing and guarding defectors, for helping to establish their bona fides, and for assisting in their debriefing. Similarly, it is the Office of Security that debriefs retiring agency employees and administers the sometimes embarrassing polygraph tests that are a part of the CIA's routine. By no means finally, The inviability of all classified information within the domain of the CIA is ultimately the responsibility of the the Office of Security, of the OS. Just a, a parenthetical aside here for me, that is extremely important. By the very nature of its work, the Office of Security has domestic responsibilities that go far beyond those of any other CIA component. If, for example, a CIA officer falls afoul of the local police, it is the OS that will handle or manipulate the matter to ensure that no secrets are compromised. Similarly, if a CIA officer suffers a mental breakdown, it is the OS that will take charge of him, consult its list of approved psychiatrists, and if necessary, bundle the patient off to a CIA sanatorium. And of course, if a staff member is suspected of leaking secrets, whether to the press or to the enemy, often no distinction is made between the two. It is the Office of Security that will investigate the matter, conduct physical surveillances, and, if necessary, break into his home in order to install eavesdropping devices, which the Office of Security will then proceed to monitor. Now, to me, this brings to mind something that Hogan doesn't get into, but I guess we we can talk about it briefly here. Is the Frank Olson thing? The Frank I was Olson about to say, case. My
1: my favorite kind of CIA psychiatrist for an approved psychiatrist is a sixteenth story window. That's the best one.
0: I mean, they dosed him with acid, and there were other people that assume that were that had psychiatric training that uh, consulted with Olson after the fact. And the what he doesn't mention is, um, I mean, that he doesn't get into what this can entail. But okay, let's say you've got someone. A CIA officer who suffers a mental breakdown, the the OS will take charge of him. He goes as far as saying here, uh, if necessary, bundle them off to a CIA sanatorium. Well, in the Olson case, he is deemed, uh, it's deemed that he's a security risk and has to go. And it's James McCord himself who covers this up. So this is, is very uh, notable in terms of understanding and and the idea that this is the entity that's in charge of overseeing all the secrets. So, cia is very compartmentalized but the way that this is described and it, it's logical is that you're going to have an a, a clandestine service that's doing all sort of illegal things that are deemed super secret and the secrecy is so important that you'll even kill people if they are are threatening this and this is very relevant to watergate because this comes up repeatedly uh this aspect of, of it. it's a uh, it, it to me it brings to mind like the exception obviously the the lawlessness of the government that has to be denied and hidden and the way that this that, that in order to even maintain this kind of a system you have to have uh, an administrative body that underst- that knows the actual secrets that where someone is in charge of, of of maintaining security over these issues because they themselves are. A, A huge part of of national security, the criminality becomes itself a a core interest of the of the regime.
1: Someone has to know where the bodies are buried. Like I I think you've talked about this: of how does the JFK assassination files keep getting kicked down the road? Someone somewhere, and and, you know the the people in charge of making sure that everybody else stays in line have some kind of access. Like if you're looking for people who aren't compartmentalized fully, it's going to be the people in the office that have to. Know where the bodies are buried so that if somebody starts ta- acting up, they know where to go and they know what is at risk. They know who, you know who could get burnt out in the field. All those things, someone has to be at a central point in order to know wherever, where everything's buried. Otherwise, you, you have no way of controlling the information down the line.
0: Yep, uh, that's, that's it. And this is, uh, this is something that runs very much counter to one of the myths of the CIA, uh, which is that? Oh, it's they're just a bunch of bunglers, and it's a Keystone Cops kind of a thing. And you know, they, they wouldn't really do these things, or if they did try to kill you, they probably kill the wrong person. Uh, uh, and I think that this is one of the ways that they have kind of covered up their um, their different uh, scandals during this time period. Uh, you know, in the post the decades after World War II, is that you just you, it becomes a you know, sort of clown thing. Even Nixon at one point tries to say that about Watergate. comedy of errors thing. Like, What the hell were they doing? In his mind, it sort of seemed that way. The whole thing seemed ridiculous. How did these guys get caught doing this? What the hell were they doing? Uh, But the OS is something quite different. Uh, Maybe you can read the other passages, which kind of tie a bow on all this on on what the OS is actually about.
1: All right. So Hogan writes, the OS, in other words, is an action component of the CIA with hands-on responsibility for some of the agency's most sensitive matters. Accordingly, And unlike most other sections of the CIA, it reports directly to the DCI himself, the Director of Central Intelligence. In effect, the OS is an extension of the Director's Office in a way that no other CIA component is. And because of this organizational peculiarity, by virtue of which the office is unaccountable to anyone but the DCI, it has served as a vehicle for some of the agency's most questionable operations. It was the OS, for example, That conducted the CIA's first mind control programs, Bluebird and Artichoke, slipping experimental drugs to a series of unwitting, quote, volunteers, at least one of whom died as a direct result, launched an array of mafia-assisted operations to assassinate Fidel Castro, helped to establish deniable proprietaries or, quote, Mission Impossible agencies, such as Robert Mayhew Associates, to facilitate operations that were in fact unlawful, Surveiled and infiltrated black and anti-war organizations in the U.S. from 1962 to 72 and beyond, uh, but carried out an illegal mail opening project that lasted for more than 20 years. And lastly, worked as the principal collection agent for the domestic spying project Operation Chaos, carried out under the nominal auspices of the counterintelligence staff.
0: Right. And we had recently uh, our own experience dealing with one of those documents uh, that had been taken during this time period. Um, And uh, this is fascinating. Peter, I I wanted to emphasize the Operation Chaos angle more because they were surveilling ramparts, but Peter uh, seems to think that it was, he he writes a footnote about this and and wasn't sure that it was actually that department or or not. And uh, I, I kind of figured that it could have been routed in any way, but I deferred to Peter on that. He wrote the article and so on. But the point is, they were doing. They were the the Office of Security was engaged in all of these activities. These are the most sensitive uh, things that we know about the CIA. The things that have been documented. There's things we suspect, but in in terms of the things that we know about, um, most of them were or a lot of them were carried out through the very the very organization that uh, James McCord worked with. So when we come back, we're going to talk. In the next episode, we'll start off with a discussion about the sex, the sex angle, the sex operations uh, and how this gets pulled into uh, the state. And it's stuff that comes, it seems even more relevant today as we see the Epstein case, which shows that this stuff is still is still going on. It's not that they ever stopped with this kind of business. Um, so this makes this makes McCord's actions all the more remarkable that he was so eager to expose this crime these crimes of Nixon when really his job was to commit and cover up crimes with the CIA. So this, is, this has got to be explained. And we'll get into more of that in the next episode. Seamus, thank you very much
1: for joining us here. Thank you as always.
0: That's it for this one. I want to thank Seamus McGinnis for joining me here and for stepping up to take over episode art duties as Casey is taking a hiatus to deal with growing work obligations. I think he's done a great job on this episode art with James McCord and on the last one as well. I also want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and Mock Orange for providing the music. When we resume the series, we're going to be getting into some hot sex stuff uh, well, some disturbing sex stuff, really, all part of the truly bizarre real history of Watergate. Until next time, keep minding the light.
1: Throw it